Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, where Paul was reading for us earlier. Obviously, my throat is sore. (laughs) I've been dealing with this since Wednesday. We'll give it our best shot. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16. Now, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depths or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he will eat, and he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both of her kings. The background for, of course, one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible. And one of the things that I want to emphasize this morning is even our Savior's birth is a prophecy, and we're all familiar with it. But what most people are not familiar with is the background and how the prophecy actually came to be given. So the background of this very famous prophecy about the Lord Jesus and his virgin birth is really about a nation that went from being a good nation, Israel, to becoming a bad one. And I've entitled this message this morning, Still on the Throne. Last week we were in chapter 6, and it says in the year that Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. He was high and he was lifted up and his glory filled the temple. We talked about the seraphim that would say nothing but holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And looking ahead on why the Lord did that for Isaiah makes more sense to me now as we get to chapter 7. Uzziah, of course, the kingdom is split between Israel in the north and the two tribes in the south. Of the kings of Judah, Uzziah reigned longer than any of them. He reigned for 52 years. And then his son, Jotham, who took over after Uzziah had died, he was also a good king. He reigned for 16 years. But if you look at chapter 7, verse 1, we are now speaking of Jotham's son, and his name is Ahaz. And we've gone from two good kings to now it says, it came to pass in those days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, that the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that King Rezin of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramallah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. He's an evil king. And if I would divide chapter 7, it really divides very, very nicely into three different sections. The first section here is we have a new king. He's been around for a while. Uh, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And in verses 1 and 2, it begins to speak of this civil war between Judah and Israel with Syria. But Syria is going to be aligned with Israel in the north. And what this results in is a state of fear 
down below as Ahaz is hearing this, that Syria and Israel have teamed up and they're on their way down. So we read in verse 2, he's just getting this message. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syrian forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. They're scared, and they're starting to become undone. So in verses 3 all the way through verse 9, what God does is he speaks directly to Isaiah. And he says, I want you to give um, Ahaz a message because their fear and their worry is really starting to undo them. Now in a leadership position, if the king is freaked out, it's gonna have a trickle-down effect, I think, upon everybody. So the worry that they saw in the king's eyes, that's being transmitted down. Well, the Lord speaks directly to Isaiah. So let's pick that up in verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, I want you to go out and I want you to meet Ahab and Shir Shehab, your son. Go to the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And I want you to say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrand from the fierce anger of, of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramallah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramallah have taken counsel against you, saying, let's, let's go up against Judah, let's trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and we'll set up our own king, the son of Tibal. Thus says the Lord God, I can just see the prophet Isaiah looking at Ahaz, he's like square eyeball to eyeball, And he says, thus says the Lord God. It ain't going to happen. It will not stand. Neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria, well, that's Damascus. And the head of Damascus, that's Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim is going to be broken so that it will not even be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Ramali's son, And then he says this, if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. You know, you have to ask the question. They're already on their way. And here, Isaiah comes with such authority and assurance with this word from the Lord as he sees now uh, the grandson of Uzziah going downhill and falling apart at the seams because of what's about to take place. The question is, how can Isaiah have such confidence? How can he go and say with such certainty, you guys, I don't want you to worry about a thing. Thus says the Lord. I believe the reason that he could make that statement is he just saw God still sitting on the throne and his glory filling the temple. An angel saying, holy, 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 holy. As far as Isaiah was concerned, he'd just seen this vision. And if God said it's not gonna happen, Guess what? It's not going to happen. God is still on the throne. And the word of God has clearly been given here. Thus says the Lord. It won't come to pass, so don't be afraid. Interesting time of year. 
I'm going to have you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5 at this time. You know, this time of year, as kids, you think about it all year long. And the older you get, the significance becomes one where you really see it for the kids more than anything else. Time of great joy, um, great fellowship, getting together with family members. And for a lot of people, I mean, it is really a great time. But I want to tell you that there's equally as many people that have just the opposite experience. They dread it. This is their first Christmas without maybe their mate. Maybe it's a time that they're going through unbelievable difficulties, family problems, financial problems. The holidays, as you look around and you see everybody making merry, you're just not into it, and you're not up for it. You're worried about What's going to happen next year? Our country's never seen a year like this year. Never had things happening that are happening. And we can have this tendency when we hear certain reports where we ourselves can fall into this snare of worrying. If you look at verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6, before the Lord talks about not worrying, and in 10 verses he's going to say it six times, But I want to set it up in verse 24, where he says, You can't serve two masters, for you're either going to hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. And then he defines it more clearly. He says, You can't serve money and God. You can't serve money and God. And he's really dividing now people into two classes, and really why people actually worry. A lot of people's worries are financial. So before he gets in to thus says the Lord when it comes to this issue of Christians worrying, he's defining it in two sectors. What Gentiles seek after, chasing their tail, chasing the almighty dollar. And so before he begins to talk about that, he says, let me just tell you, you can't do both. So we read now the next verse. He says, therefore... He's tying verse 25 into verse 24. You can't do both. He says, therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, uh, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body. What you will put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Take a look around at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Which of you, now, he told us not to do it. Everybody understands so far, God is telling the church, I don't want you to worry. Can I get an amen for that? Clear enough? I mean, he said, don't worry. It's not a suggestion. And then he goes on to say, but even if you do, let's say you choose to ignore it. What difference is it going to make is the rationale. For which of you, by worrying, can add one inch to your height? Go ahead. Toss eternal night. Worry about it. But Jesus is saying it's not going to change a thing. The fact of the matter is, adversity is going to come in your life. You are going to have dark Christmases. You're going to have good Christmases. But either way, it doesn't matter. You could wake up some morning, and you're supposed to speak in front of a lot of people and not even have a voice. (laughs) What are you going to do about that? Give it your best shot, okay? 
I'm not going to worry about it. I hope you can understand me. But it doesn't change a thing by worrying about it one bit. And when you read the adversities that our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, all of them died martyrs. Paul's record of woes and trials are off the chart. And he says, yet I'm going to glory in my infirmities, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And uh, God gets the glory and not man. So the commandment is you're going after money or you're going after the Lord, but you can't have it both ways, so don't pretend about it. Therefore, don't worry if you're a Christian. He takes care of the birds, he'll take care of you. He knows you so well. He knows your thoughts before you think him. Think about them. He says that the very hairs on your head are numbered. He is so in love with you. Uh, You're his desire. He calls you his bride. And he will take care of you even when it seems like, why are you allowing this to happen in my life, Lord? Well, he has a reason. You see, he's on the throne, and he's very well aware that the king Ahaz is flipping out and worried. So what does he do? He sends the word of God. And basically, Isaiah's persuaded because I just saw him sitting on the throne. And the last time I checked my Bible, he's still there, looking over and overseeing our lives. Then he says, Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, another therefore, do not worry. Saying, well, what are we going to eat, or where are we going to drink, or where's the next paycheck going to come from? He says, for after these things, Gentiles, let me rephrase it, For after these things, non-believers worry about. Now we're going to find out in just a little bit that even though Ahaz was hearing from Isaiah, don't worry about it, he doesn't want to hear it. And we all have people that we tell him, you know, you can go through tough times, but I found since I became a Christian and gave my life to Christ, you know, I can go through the storms. Uh, We're not exempt Jesus said, the wise man builds his house upon a solid rock. Those who hear my words are wise men. He says, storms will come. The wind's going to blow, but the house is still going to stand. Why? Because it's built on the rock. What's the rock? The word of God. But then you have the Ahazes. He says, then there's those who build their house upon the sand. Same storms come. Same trials come. But when it's tried, it says it failed. And the reason for its failure is because it was built on sand. These are those who hear the word of God, but don't apply it to their life. So church, we're told here, don't be like the Gentiles, because these are the things they worry about. For after these things the Gentiles seek, your heavenly Father knows the needs that you have. So prioritize. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. It's a matter of priority. Six times, twice in this last verse, therefore, 
do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's another way of saying you got enough to think about today without worrying about tomorrow. Good time for an amen. Just think about that if you actually do that. If you only thought about what was going on and taking place today and not worrying about tomorrow. You know how many people are worried about tomorrow and it's wrecking their today? Lots of them. And here we're told, thus saith the Lord, don't do it. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's make our way back to Isaiah and um, we can say that because God is still on the throne. Here in chapter 7 is the background to this very, very famous prophecy. God gives us prophecy to comfort and to reassure us that what he says will surely come to pass. So what we have in Isaiah 7 is a prophecy that was given to a king who really didn't even want to hear it. Then he says in verse 10, brings us to our text this morning, and the tenor of the message from Isaiah to Ahaz now is not to worry about this alliance of these two enemies in the north. God has determined that their venture is going to be a failure. Here's the problem. How will Ahaz know it? To begin with, he's a skeptic, he's a doubter, he's an unbeliever, but he's also evil. And uh, how will he be convinced that what Isaiah is saying is true? So he says, go ahead, put him to the test. Verse 10. Go ahead, Ahaz, ask anything you want to. Ask for a sign from the Lord. Whatever you want. From the heights above to the depths beneath. Basically, he's saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? I want to reassure you. This is important, gang, because the only really assurance and comfort that I have living in the days that we live in is I've read the end of the book several times. I know how it's all going to turn out. I don't care how dark it gets. It's going to get dark. And there's really going to be peace until Jesus returns. But I know he's got a plan, and it's unfolding exactly as he wants it to. Good time for an amen there. Exactly as he's still on the throne, and his plan is unfolding. But who's going to hear it? Well, hopefully us. Ahaz doesn't want anything to do with it. He says, but Ahaz says in verse 12, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to ask. I don't want to test the Lord, giving a Christianese language. And then he said, and this ticks Isaiah off. He says, hear now, house of David. It's a small thing for you to worry men. In other words, you're wearying me. I stood in the presence of your grandfather. I know what I'm talking about, and I know what I heard. And you're wearying me. But will you worry my God also? Okay, you're not going to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you one anyway. Therefore, the Lord himself, he's going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, 
What a treat this morning, almost. For all three of the first three songs are all about Emmanuel. That was great. Which simply means God with us. And you will call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he will eat, and he will know to refuse and choose the good from the evil. Now, God's purposes and plans always aren't on our timetable. This prophecy is not going to be fulfilled for another 700 years. Just let that sink in a little bit. 700 years is going to pass before we get to Luke chapter 1, and that's where I'm going to have you turn to next. Luke chapter 1. Of course, this time of year we've been reading these verses for so long that the prophecy is now time. We read in Ephesians, when, when the fullness of time had come, then God sent forth his son. Now, in other words, everything is according to God's perfect timing. So, in chapter 1, verse 26, 700 years later from this prophecy, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, and she was betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph. He was of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, for the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and and considered, what kind of greeting is this? And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and he shall be called Jesus He will be great, he will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. For his kingdom there will be no end. Wow, what a lot to take in for a young teenage gal. Then Mary said to the angel, well, how can this be? I've never known a man. Never slept with a man before. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. He will be called Emmanuel. And now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son. This would be John of John the Baptist. And he's, she's six months into her labor. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Can I read that one again? For with God, nothing can be impossible. Well, how can, a virgin, how can this possibly happen? Do you know that she had to live with that reputation? Small town, people know everything. Even in Jesus' time, in John 8, when he's in ministry, 
and they're having this debate back and forth. And the Pharisees start losing the debate. They start playing dirty. And they pull out this trump card that they thought they had. They said, well, we weren't born of fornication. Implication being, you were. You know, it was out there. That uh, the story, well, you know, she conceived by God. Yeah, right. Dads, your teenage girl comes home. She's pregnant. Well, you see, Dad, it really happened that the Lord spoke to me, and that's the reason I'm pregnant. Are you buying that? (laughs) So here's something that Mary had to live with her whole life. And even Jesus um, had to take this insult uh, when he was debating the scribes and the Pharisees. Nothing's impossible with God. He prophesied it 700 years ago to a man who didn't even want to hear it, Ahaz. And then Mary said, and this is great, instead of an attitude of an Ahaz, she said, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Wow. Here's the prophecy 700 years later, and it's coming to pass. You know, let's just take it a step farther and just turn the page to chapter 2. God with us, Emmanuel. Just think about that. Paul elaborates on that in Romans 8, verse 31. He says, what can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know, if you belong to him, do you really believe that he's working all things out together for your good? This crazy raspy voice I got going on here, somehow, some way, I believe he's going to work it out to his good. But these things, time and chance, happens to everybody. And um, all I know, God's on my side. And he's for us, so who's ever going to be against us? Answer, no one. Why? Because with him, nothing is impossible. So, did it happen? Did it ever come to pass? Well, in Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse... Eight says, now when they were in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. I read that verse, and um, all of a sudden I can see it. I was just there. Ed and Jan Knackers gave their testimony in the shepherd's fields, the very place that this, this is taking place. So all of a sudden I have a visual And behold, the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Interesting, whenever you read about a real angel appearing, what is always the first response? (laughs) Fear. And what does the angel always have to say? Don't be afraid. (laughs) You know, we we have this Michelangelo view of of, uh, angels or look like little bumblebees with big wings, right? And they're sort of just flighting around. No, 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 no. These guys are fierce-looking dudes. And when you see when you're afraid of, of their countenance and their appearance and their power and their glory and their majesty, no different here. And so this angel, they were not afraid. They were greatly afraid. 
Then the angel said to them, what? (laughs) Don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I gave a Bible study in this field, and I said the amazing thing about it is, let's go back 3,000 years. It's still a shepherd's field. And there's no buildings on it. You can see Bethlehem on the other side. That's where Boaz fell in love with Ruth. It's where David raised his sheep. And then it's where the angels appeared and spoke to the shepherd. All in this one place. Sort of surreal as you think of the history and everything that's happening there. And it's all happening And it says, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, this is just one angel. But heaven can't contain itself. This this is the moment that's been preordained for 700 years. God is actually going to take on human flesh and come and walk amongst his people on this planet. And they can't hold it back. And suddenly... There was with the angels a multitude of angels in the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And we look around and we say, Is anything farther from the truth? Well, you have to understand the rendering of this reading. It reads, Glory to God in the highest, peace among men of goodwill. Not peace on earth, but peace to men who are of goodwill is the correct um, understanding of that particular verse. And even with reading that in this place, it did happen. And um, uh, they went and they saw the baby lying in a manger. And they bore witness that indeed what the prophet had said um, had come to pass. Uh, And yet, with this great joy, the fact of the matter is, for most Christians, uh, or most people, let me rephrase that, for most people around Christmas time, let's be honest, it's not about the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody want to say amen? Majority. It's not about um, the coming of Emmanuel and God being with us. It's really about big business, and commercialism, and going back to Matthew 6, you can't have it both ways. You can either serve money or you can serve God. So right now, we are at the time of year, beginning with um, Black Friday, which is another way of saying, sales on, come on out. And between now, it'll, there's a countdown. You guys only have so many days left, so you better get out there. You better make sure you get your your shopping done. The guys got me in trouble yesterday in men's prayer, and I had to change part of the Bible study because of where we were. But it, it applies so much to what's going on today at this time. I can't help and resist going there because it deals with one of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible. But you have to turn to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 27. So allow me to get a little bit sidetracked. Is that okay? Christmas present for me? All right. Little sidetrack, Ezekiel. You can start with um, 
looking at 25. And let me just give you a little bit of background. At men's prayer, uh, we go through the Bible. We happen to be in Ezekiel. Yesterday, we read 25, 26, 27, and um, part of 28. And the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel has one theme. It is that God is going to bring judgment upon his people because they have rejected him. So the first 24 chapters are just about Israel. Chapter 25, now it's about the nations. So there's 17 verses here, and God is now going to pronounce judgment, not on Israel, but the first one is Ammon. The second one is Moab in verse 8. In verse 12, it's Edom. And in verse 15, it's Philistia. There are 17 verses divided by four. That's 4.5 verses for each one of these nations. Not very much. He just says, I'm going to bring judgment. But then, beginning with chapter 26, he begins to talk about Tyre. These other guys had four or five verses. Tyre has three whole chapters dedicated to its downfall. So something's a little different. And there's more information given here about Tyre. The first thing I want to point out is Tyre is the largest and most important city of the Phoenicians. It's located on the Mediterranean coast, as well as by a nearby island with two natural harbors on the, on the leeward side. <clears throat> it was besieged, and it fell for this reason. We read in verse 2, the Lord is speaking to Ezekiel. He always calls him son of man. And he says, because Tyre has said against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken, who was the gateway of the peoples. Now she's turned over to me. I will be filled. She is laid waste. What are they doing? They're boasting. I would liken it to when um, um, many of the Arabs and Muslims were dancing in the street the day after 9-11. And that's what's going on here. They're going, ah, Jerusalem has, has fallen. You know what that means? Better business for us. We're going to get all their trade. And they became, as I researched this, and as the guys were reading through, through this, <clears throat> the one thing that stuck out was the wealth and the pro- prosperity. Go to chapter 27, verse 12. Most of it is just how they excelled in the extreme of merchandising and what we would call business trading today. In verse 12, it says, uh, Tarsius was your merchant because, you, because of your many luxury goods. They gave you silver, iron, tin, lead for your goods. Javan, Tubal, Meshach were your traders. Uh, they bartered human lives, slave tradery, bronze, and your, all for your merchandise. You did it all for money. For those of the house of Turgama traded with your wares, with horses and steeds and mules, 
The men of Dedan were your traders. Many islands were the markets of your hand. They brought you ivory, tusk, and ebony as payment. Syria was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made. They gave you your wages, emeralds, purple, embroidery, fine linen, corals, and rubies. Judah and the land of Israel were your traders. They were actually business partners at one time. But now they're boasting, "Eh, Israel's gone, more bucks for us. Damascus was your merchant because of the abundance of goods you made, because of you made many luxuries with the wine of, of Helbon and with white wool. And I could go on and on and on. But here we have three chapters, and the Lord is saying, I am going to judge Tarshish. I'm not going to talk about five verses. I'm going to give you three whole chapters. Well, here is where it gets interesting for me. Because the prophet is going to tell exactly how this mighty empire is going to fall. I'm going to put on screen a picture of of Tyre before she fell. You notice um, the Mediterranean Gulf, and you notice the island out a little bit, and uh, then it looks like railroad tracks are sort of making its way out there. This is what happened. We read, um, oh, go back to chapter 26, and in context, it's actually talking about Nebuchadnezzar coming. If you look at verse 3, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will cause many nations. And I want you to see that. Not one nation, many nations will come up against you as the waves come. And they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. And I will also scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. All right, now look. And it's a reference in the first king to do this was Nebuchadnezzar. But he wasn't successful in completely defeating um, the uh, prince of Tyre. And so when when you get to verse 11, it says, and with the hooves of the horses, he will trample your streets. He will slay your people by the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. Now between verse 11 and 12, we have the reign of Nebuchadnezzar And all of a sudden, in verse 12, we're going to start talking about Alexander the Great. Well, how do you know that, Dwight? Well, it's hindsight. It's history for us now. And we know that the siege of Tyre, you can look this up, was orchestrated by Alexander the Great. When in 332 B.C., during his campaign against Persia, the Macedonian army was unable to capture the city. Not only Nebuchadnezzar, but now the Macedonians. They couldn't do it. But Alexander shows up, and he begins to assess the situation. How do I get the city to fall? Well, it says that in verse 12, they will plunder. Now this is speaking of Alexander the Great. They will plunder your riches. They will break down your walls. They will destroy your pleasant houses. They will lay your stones, your timbers, and your soil in the midst of the water. And I will put an end to the sound of your songs. 
and I will make you like the top of a rock. Here's what happened. Here's a prophecy that's not going to be fulfilled for 250 years. And here is Ezekiel saying, this is exactly how it's going to happen. Alexander comes up, looks at the situation. He looks at the uh, uh, city of Tyre. They, fearing Alexander, they move to the island and they build this fortress out there. So by the time Alexander shows up, there's an empty city. Well, he thinks about it for a while. And then he took the city apart. And it says here that they will lay your stones and your timbers in the midst of the water. Let me show you that what it looks like today from this picture. And what Alexander did is when he ran out of building material from stones from the city and the timber, he scraped it right down to bedrock so that he could make this causeway out. For years they looked for the ancient city of Tyre. And just recently, within I think last several hundred years, they stumbled across this. But they couldn't find Tyre. There was no real trace of it until they did a little bit more research beginning with the causeway only to find out. I'll give you an example that is applicable to Calvary Chapel of Appleton. There used to be a, a stream that would run through the back here uh, many years ago when it was Schaefer Dairy. And it ran right down to the river. And um, uh, they filled it all in with the old College Avenue Street Bridge. And that's primarily what the back of the parking lot is made up of. That was free. That wasn't a part of Bible study. I saw I'd throw that in. It wasn't even in my notes. But I can identify because we've have, had water problems ever since. You notice how it kind of dips out there in that one spot? That's because the stream is still there and it's still, we've got to fix it every other year. We've got to keep adding concrete or asphalt to it. But this is how Alexander, it's sort of like Masada, building the ramp up. Well, that's how the city was conquered. And it's a relatively recent archaeological discovery. We don't know where Tyre is. Why are you making such a big deal out of this, Dwight? Because I, I want you to see the minute accuracy of Bible prophecy. 250 years before it happened. The virgin birth, Bible prophecy. 700 years, but right down, he's got it nailed right down exactly how it's going to happen. Throw those timbers in, scrape it like dust. They'll use it for spreading of the nets. And what was their sin? They were haughty against Jerusalem. Oh, they were glad they fell. You know what the comments of the guys in men's prayer were? Sounds a lot like America, doesn't it? And a lot like the commercialism that we're in. And um, our attitude used to be one where we were Israel's best ally, just like Tyre and Jerusalem once got along. Not any longer. Our administration has changed its feelings and love and support for the nation of Israel. Our economy is transfixed this week because the Federal Reserve, which is neither federal or a reserve, it is a privately owned institution, and that's a whole subject by itself, but they raise their interest by a quarter point. So what are we talking about as a country? That's what's on the news. 
Now, one news item that I hear that, you know, 2,000 years ago, there's this unbelievable prophecy from Isaiah chapter 7. CNN didn't cover it. Fox News didn't cover it. NBCN didn't cover it. Nobody's covering it. Every once in a while, you, you might be lucky and get a, get a, um, a Christmas story, but not, not really a biblical one. And we have uh, the one comment that the guys made over and over and over again is this is America. Uh, we're concerned with, with uh, the materialism. We're concerned with, with trading. And if you go to chapter 28, the king of Tyre, and I've got to begin to wrap this up. Chapter 1 of chapter 28 says, now I want, this is the last chapter, said Ezekiel, said a man, I want you to speak to the prince of Tyre. Um, and he says, you've lifted yourself up in pride. All right, now I'll go to, to verse 12. Then he says, now I want you to speak to the king of Tyre. So there literally was a prince who was in Tyre. But when we get to verse 12, we're talking about somebody very, very different. And it says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Well, hold it a second. The prince of Tyre wasn't in Eden. Well, who was? Lucifer. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardix, topaz, diamond, the workmanship of your timbles. You were perfect on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub. Now, Isaiah saw the four seraphim, but there was actually one more that fell. And he actually had a place of higher prominence than these other four. You were the anointed cherub. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were, past tense, perfect in your ways from the day that you were created. Satan was a a created being until iniquity was found in you. Now here's what I find interesting. One of the reasons for his fall, by the abundance of your trading, what? Yeah, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I'm going to cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Jesus said, I saw Santa falling, I mean Satan falling from heaven like a, like a, don't they sound awfully a lot the same or is it just me? And we become a society that has become, I don't think we realize how dangerous this is, but the Lord clearly laid it out. It's money or, the, or Jesus. Can't have both. I'm not saying that God can't bless you as a businessman, but where's your heart and where are your priorities? It reminds me of, of my friend John Corson. He was putting his, his boy to bed at night, and he'd pray for him every night before he'd go to sleep. And he'd pray, oh, Lord, just look over my son, and I just pray that your presence will be with him tonight in Jesus' name, amen. And his little boy looked at him and says, are we done, Dad? And uh, John says, yeah, we're done. He says, okay, now, where are the presents? 
Your presence, your, I pray your presence will be with you all night. Okay? I'm, in, I'm into that. Where's the presence, Dad? You see, it's all a matter of our thought process. And what's this all about anyway? Well, we're just making our way through God's word. And we're going through another Christmas. And we can get caught up in the hustle and the bustle and forget what it's really all about. It can be an infection uh, even, even in the church today. And it can affect us. <clears throat> the guy's conclusion is our country is ready for judgment. That was their conclusion. And I have to agree with them. And having said that, guess what? God is still on the throne. I don't worry about it a bit. You see, I know what God's word has to say about the coming judgment. And basically, he's telling us, don't worry about it. How can you say that, Dwight? Well, he says, not only am I going to tell you what I'm going to do, but after I tell you what I am going to do, I want you to be comforted, and I don't want you to worry. So planet Earth, our country, is ripe, just like Tyre was. We've changed our attitude towards God's chosen people, Israel. Some people are thinking it shouldn't be there. That would settle the problem in the Middle East. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about judgment, God says, not for you, not for my bride. Uh -uh. God's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. He's the one who died for us. That's why he came. Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other. Let me rephrase it. Therefore, don't worry. God's still on the throne. He has a perfect plan. Jesus said, only my father knows the day and the hour. And there's going to come a time when the father's going to look at the son and say, now. And we're going to be out of here in twinkling of an eye. And the world is going to go through a very, very difficult period of time. Until then, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you're doing. Well, Peace on earth, goodwill towards men? No, that's not what that means. There will be no peace until he returns. When the prince of peace returns, he is going to set up a kingdom where righteousness will rule. Then and only then will there be peace on this planet. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, thank you for letting my voice hold out a little bit. Thank you for that you tell us these things ahead of time so that when they happen, we will believe. Lord, not one of your prophecies has not come to pass. And that gives us great confidence when you tell us not to worry about what we see coming down the pike. I pray for those that are carrying things on their shoulder when you've asked them to cast cares upon you. For any that are overwhelmed or burdened this day, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take that worry away from them and give them the prince of peace, your perfect peace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.